And this is our plan of attack. Banks have become an essential threat to our democracy. So consider this justice. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the internet. Please help support this station so this battle can continue forward. Revolution Radio! Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener-supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, Now is the time to get a few months ahead and really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long-term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health, not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four-month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with Extend The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Do you feel as if you don't belong? Do you know you were meant for something more? Well, you were. Knowledge of who you are and where you really are from is within your reach.
Join Janet Carol Lesson and Dr. Sasha Lesson as they search for the answers as they open up the Stargate to the cosmos. Aloha and welcome to Stargate to the Cosmos. I'm your host, Janet Care Lesson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Alex Lesson, and we're on Revolution Radio at revolution.radio. Our producer is Thomas Decker, and our special guest today is Chrisada Duran. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She's an author, editor, and publisher. And she's the author of Web of Life in Cosmos, Human and Bigfoot Star Ancestors, a premier paranormal UFO investigator and Native American advocate. Duran provides us with the requisite tools to make the connections with a vast array of seemingly disparate phenomenon, going beyond mere chronology. Chronologies, how's that? Chronologies of mysterious lights in the sky reports so typical of many contemporary ufologists. Duran carefully selected those UFO cases directly tied to the fulfillment of prophecies made long ago by the seers among various ethnic groups, particularly Native Americans. And she is a um, there's a big long bio on AquarianRadio.com, but she's a futurist and developer of the Time Star model of planetary time space cycles. She's a UFO experiencer and student of trance. Himalayan adepts. She has a uniquely inspired method of forecasting planetary, solar, and galactic interactions as a cohesive whole system with synthesis of ancient modern models of time, space, and reality. And she's uh, she's been researching crop circles since 1993 to find correlations with planetary and human energetic conditions. She balances an innate sense of pragmatism and context with time travel. Time, yeah. Time travelers. We're going to talk about time travelers and extraterrestrial sources. And she and Ida Kattenberg, who's one of the previous generation ufologists, shared mutual experiences with time travelers from Atlantis and contemporary UFO contacts. And let's see. Dr. Sasha Lesson, are you there? Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm here. I'm very interested in Bigfoot. Um, as you know, my specialty is ancient Sumerian uh, writing and things like that. And the Sumerians uh, uh, left records that uh, Homo erectus, the ancestor of Bigfoot, was so amazingly telepathic and uh, empathetic to other creatures that, uh, and uh, basically they, uh, they used uh, some Bigfoot or Homo erectus genes in our genes so that with a hope that we would become telepathic and sensitive to others more than, than the Anunnaki person. I'm, I'm super interested in that, Chrisana. Good. Chrisana, welcome to the show. We're so delighted to have you. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, we're excited. You've got so many directions we can go. I've been uh, correlating and gathering all your information and putting it on AquarianRadio.com. And I'd like to begin a little bit about you, the personal. Who are you and how did you get into this? And you mentioned you were an experiencer. Maybe we can start at the beginning uh, when you came into this 3D human form and uh, started having contact. Well, let's see. I was born in uh, Bethany, Oklahoma, 
where my parents met at the Nazarene Ministerial School. So that gives you a good starting point in terms of a very traditional and Christian home, which is where I came from. And um, mm-hmm. the entire, entire town of Bethany was built around the Nazarene College. Uh, I started having experiences when I was four and five. Uh, my first one was a vision of Jesus. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> then I had odd things happen after that. At the age of seven... Wait, wait, that was odd enough. What was the visions of Jesus? Tell us about that. Well, Where were they? How did he appear? What was he doing? Okay. I was... Uh, we, we were devout churchgoers. And so I mm-hmm. had gone to church with my mother on a Sunday night. And I was always in trouble uh, at church. I, I was uh, I ran away from nursery school, and they had to go track me down. So it was always like keep your mouth shut and keep your hand on your lap. And I was sitting next to my mother, really trying to do everything right. And suddenly, this man walked by me, and he was wearing a robe, and he, it was so physically real that his robe brushed against me. And I suddenly just saw Jesus the way he was. And I I realized in my own reality, at that time, people don't understand Jesus. So that was probably one of the first uh, visionary um, experiences I had. Then when I was seven... I was intercepted on the way home from school by by these little guys who had a UFO parked in the woods. There was a, I used to, there was a woods between my home and my school. And I had a little route that I followed through the woods. And one day I was walking in the woods and I felt something. I, I just felt it. It was a sense of, Something's there. So I very carefully walked up to to that site, and there was a, a circular craft on three legs um, parked in the woods. So I, uh, I was trying to be quiet, and I uh, sat. I... I it was my version of sneaking. I sneaked up to the craft where I could see them, and I didn't think they would pay any attention to me. And I leaned up against the tree, and the next thing you know, I was out. And they actually—it was very—it was very, it was very uh, neutral contact. They measured my body parts. They measured my arms, my legs, my shoulders. And uh, one of them said, this is a healthy female. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then they laughed. Good specimen. <laughs> and then I had to go home and tell my mother why I was so late. And um, I what forgot what I told her. 
I don't remember exactly what I told her, but by that time, my mother was used to little episodes, you know, uh, coming and going. But what did happen after that is I could feel their presence at night when I went to bed. And, um, and there was an empty field next to our house, and I had a strong feeling that there was someone there, that it was them, that they had come back, and they were parked in the woods next to our house. So that was when I was seven. And then I, I, I fulfilled that prophecy. I was very healthy female, uh, very athletic, very wiry, rough and tumble. And I, but I had started smoking, and that was a big deal. By the time I was 14, I had started smoking, and I had to sneak and, and smoke cigarettes. So one night when I was 15, and I know, I, I know my age just by uh, back engineering my life. I had to have been 15. I woke up. I took a nap in the afternoon. I woke up. I went to my front door, and I suddenly had this strange feeling that everything was in stasis, right? Now, this was in August, and, and you've got to remember it was Oklahoma, and it was hot. We were in a heat wave. So everything was in stasis, and I got a little scared, and I thought, I, don't, I, I walked to the door to go buy a package of cigarettes. My family was gone. I had no idea where they were. They left while I was sleeping. And uh, I, I thought, I don't really want to go out there. This just feels so strange. And then I thought, now, wait a minute. If I'm going to get cigarettes, I have to walk to the store to get them. And I'm not going to just get scared over nothing. So I walked out the door started walking up the street, and I saw this huge yellow light flying above the treetops, the housetops. And then that object made a 90-degree uh, a turn and started descending towards me at a 45-degree angle. And I'm going, oh, my God, they're watching me. And I turned around to run and to scream. And I couldn't, I couldn't move, and I couldn't uh, scream. The next thing you know, I am on the craft. They had me laying on a table, and there was a, a really kind man, human, totally human. He had a sort of mottled uh, grayish-blue eyes, and he was rubbing my forehead, with what looked like a little wand and with his hand. And when I looked in his eyes, he very clearly told me he would not harm me. And being a really naive Oki, I said, oh, good, <laughs> right? But I immediately liked him, and, um, and I just relaxed. And I must have gone out for a while. They had these lights. It was like a bank of lights directly above me while I laid on the table. And I must have gone out for a while because 
The next thing I knew, uh, some little gray guys, which I now know were androids, were waking me up. And they uh, walked with me up a, uh, like an incline. It was like mm-hmm. a, it wasn't stairs, it was an incline. And in the, in the, uh, at the end of our walk, there was the same man I had liked, and he was sitting in a room with two doors, and he was wearing a brownish robe. I occasionally have seen that color, but it's really hard to describe. It was not a chocolate brown. Anyway, he, we started talking telepathically. And then I realized, and it was just so natural, we just uh, started talking. And then I realized, wait a minute, this guy's lips aren't moving. <laughs> and um, right. anyway, that is when he gave me a lot of information. And But the most important thing he told me was that you have lived many lives in the past. And you will not live many more in the future. And that just made perfect sense. I thought, oh, well, okay, thanks. And um, then I started realizing that I really liked this guy. And remember, I was pure Oki. And, um, mm-hmm. well, you'll and have to I was explain that. What does that mean to be pure Oki? <laughs> Because I don't understand what you're meaning by that. Well, Okie is a term for Oklahoma, right? Right. I know that. And Okie is someone from Oklahoma. And frankly, they are a very, uh, they're a very unusual people. I would have to tell you the history of Oklahoma uh, to really understand why they are so unusual. And they're a little bit... um, as a rule, outspoken and um, um, not high culture is not their strong point. Okay. You know, just <laughs> outspoken, say what's on your mind, and, uh, and not, not much experience of the world of fashion theater, and that sort of thing, okay? Does that explain okay. it? That, that and I was really, yes. I'm sorry? What I was said, that? that explains it, yes. I said, yes, I, I understand I'm, what you're saying. And at that time, I was very much like that. I just spoke up, um, said what was on my mind, and, and uh, damn the torpedoes. Right? We just were not a graceful people. We were not a a well-cultured people. It was a frontier mindset. Uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma became a state and was settled and given away in about one day in 1907. Oklahoma was part of the land that was given to the Indians for as long as the water flows and the grasses grow. Or until they needed someone to to take it and settle it. And then they gave it away in a land run in one day. And that's what you had, opportunists. 
Oklahoma is an incredibly, Okies, for the most part, are very opportunistic. So anyway, um, I was with this guy, and I realized, you know, I really like this old guy, and, and he was not very tall, by the way. I mean, he was about maybe an inch or two taller than me, and I was 5'7". So he was about 5'9", totally human, and he always had a look like he was enjoying a good joke all the time. And uh, I started thinking, huh, I really like these guys. And if I'd known I was going to meet him, I would have dressed, <laughs> dressed up. And I was thinking, oh, I could have worn, yeah, I could have worn my white heels and my white dress. And he started laughing hilariously, right? And he said, mm-hmm. we're going to take you. And I said, oh, no, I can't go. My parents will be very upset if I don't go home tonight. So he just, he had his arms crossed over his chest, and he just smiled. And um, pretty soon, they dropped me off. I just materialized in the in a house that was empty, it was vacant, about two doors down from my home. And I heard a swooshing sound, like, you know, and I looked up, and there was a circular craft ascending. And being a being a little oaky, I thought, you know what? No one's going to ever believe me, and I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> so I just did. I didn't tell them. My my mother would have been hysterical. My father would have been just speechless. So I just went home, continued to live my life, and um, but soon after that, I became very telepathic and psychic. And as an example of what I and clairvoyant, I, I became clairvoyant. My uh, must have been my tenth or eleventh grade Spanish teacher uh, was in the hall one day talking to some other teachers. And I heard her say that they were moving, and she was a little nervous about it. So I went to class, and I asked her, I said, well, are you moving? And she said, my God, how do you know that? I said, well, you told me. She says, I did not tell you that because I haven't told anyone. And she said, please do not tell anyone. I said, okay. I mean, to me, it's no big deal. And um, at the end of the year, she called my mother, told my mother how happy she was that I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so at that point, I became very um, metaphysically oriented. I became clairvoyant, uh, especially when someone is really focusing on me. I've had that happen a number of times. There was a time when I had to watch people's mouths to make sure their lips were moving before I responded to what they were saying. So from that, I I was. And that's because you were, you were, you were just so so clairvoyant. I was read minds. Is that what you're saying? Because I, yeah, were you able to read the minds at that point? 
no, excuse me. What you I said was I was clear audience. To see their audience. Okay. So you could hear what they I were could thinking. Hear them. Yeah, it was like they were standing next to me and I could hear them. And I had numerous experiences with that happening. And uh, I don't want to give you examples. I don't want to spend this time giving That's you okay. examples of clairaudience. But I also became very clairvoyant and clairaudient. And I decided by the time I was 18 that finding the life force that drives all life was the most important thing I could do with my life. So I ran away, sort of, I was 18, but still, to uh, L.A., 1967. We were on the, in the high, big boom on Sunset Strip. The hippies were all out in droves, and to find the life force. And after I had been there a couple of weeks, I was standing at a bus stop with a real hippie and a, and a black woman. And I suddenly realized, you know, I came here to find the life force and I haven't found it yet. So, and that is something Anoki would say. It's like a real direct um, observation. And so um, I turned to the guy, the hippie guy, and I said, hey, do you know uh, how to find the life force? And he said, no, but I, I don't know what it is. Tell me. So I started explaining what the life force was all about. And he, and he uh, wrote his name and number on a piece of paper and handed it to me. He says, I just don't know what that is, but when you find it, give me a call. <laughs> so I was... Yeah, I was off and running with my life at that point. And from there, and at that time, I worked for an insurance company, um, and I did uh, clerical administrative work most of my life. By the time I retired in 2011, I was the office and business manager for modern and classical languages and literatures, at the University of Montana. And uh, believe me, you think retirement's going to be wonderful, and it is, but it is a complete adjustment of your life and your entire way of thinking. So it was at that point that I began writing and wrote Web of Life and Cosmos. But there's a little part in there I should add and that is, prior to that time, which was 2011, um, I had gone on the UFO circuit, and I somehow, oh, I, I met Heidi Cannonberg. Now, Ida was 30 right. years older than me. She was born in 1914. And she and I became very good friends. And I started having big UFO contacts. And, um, I mean, visual sighting and phenomena. And uh, so I just spent a lot of time holding my hand. <laughs> um, because it's a, it's a shock. I don't care who you are. 
when this stuff starts happening, it is shocking. It's different. Well, than let me just read uh, a little bit about Ida, because Ida is an important character in your play. And most people, I haven't heard of her. I don't know who's heard of her, but she's one of those first generation ufologists. And in 1940, Ida May Cannonberg met a UFO while traveling through the desert outside Los Angeles. She was tricked into thinking her help was needed, and as she thought she was giving blood, they were pulling, putting implants into her body. She met some of the people she then would be taking psychic dictation from, but forgot all about them. And then the voices began in 68. So she had communication, communicators or time travelers. Her, her communicators are time travelers from the time of Atlantis and a being from the beginning of time on Earth, Toth, Thoth. Uh, her closest collaborator or living companion was Quegg, and he was the child of a time traveler and a Russian of royal birth. So this is, uh, in 1940, most people don't think that you know, we were having this contact until the 50s with the, the first generation of contactees. So she's going way back, and she's written a number of books, which uh, you can still get them on Amazon, correct? Yeah, it looks like correct all of them on Amazon. Yeah, so what you and you were in a close relationship with her, and so uh, so you said she was holding your hand, getting helping you get through this, and she was what you say thirty years older than you. Is that what you said? Right. How I was born in forty eight, and she was born in nineteen fourteen. Okay. Wow. Exactly, 34 years. 34 years. Sasha, right. do you want to say anything here or ask any questions at this point? Then we'll go back to your story, but I just want Sasha to get this two cents let's in. Just, let's, just, let's just keep the flow of the story going. Okay, just want to make sure we're not ignoring you. Okay, continue. Go ahead. You're doing great. <clears throat> so we're, we're so in the anyway. eye phase. They very carefully communicated with Ida and me simultaneously. The first time it happened, I was, now remember, I had been clairaudient all my life almost. And so I'm not surprised. I mean, I could just simply hear them. And um, one day I was sitting at my computer. And a voice said to me, all I have to say is don't ever call me boy. I said, all right. You know, like, that's fine. I won't call you boy. Well, as it turns out, that was wide. And I know that it was wide because of many communications like that. So I called Ida. I said, Ida? Somebody was here, and I think it must have been wide. And he said the strangest thing. He said, don't ever call me boy. And, I mean, I can only say fine. And so she said, oh, that's what he was talking about this morning. She said that morning that he had been talking to her, and he, um, he asked her why a black man 
had been so upset when her husband called him boy. So, and that was in the 60s. And so Ida had to go back and explain all of this to Wige and why it was an insult and why persons of African-American descent were especially sensitive to it. And then from that point, Wise began talking to me and Ida often simultaneously. And he is, he is a time traveler, but he was born on this planet. So, so that's how that what, portion of yeah, the so, so two things. So he's communicating with two people. Uh, this is telepathic, so it's in your head. And you're both right. getting the same message. Right. And they deliberately did that to some Ida and me, that they were the same people, and they were talking to both of us. Well, what that created between me and Ida was a really sympathetic relationship that you would call guru sisters, which is you are the same guru. So there's certain things that you share and that you know because you work with the same guru. And that's exactly who Wige was. And I have had many of my contacts with definitely uh, Hindu. Almost everything I know about Hinduism is what they taught me. So those are very um, ancient people on this planet. I mean, there's evidence, I think it's very good evidence, that um, the people who became the Hindus oh, about, let's call it about four or 500 B.C., had been at Gobekli Tepe. And one of the pieces of evidence that I point to is a carving, a sculpting, of a human head with a ponytail uh, down the center of the back. Well, that is the Hindu priest uh, pigtail. That's how they wear their hair. Mm-hmm. And that was found at Gobekli Tepe. So these, these uh, people go very deep into our ancient history. They were not Hindus at the time, but they did subsequently become Hindus. And Buddhist. Buddhism came out of their tradition. And all of that was first, to my knowledge, first evidence that had Gobekli Tepe. And we know that goes back to 12,000 years, 10,000 B.C., 12,000 years ago. Right. Sasha. We should Sasha. Oh, I concur yeah, with your ahead. analysis. Right, you are right on. I, I, I totally, my research confirms what you're saying. Right. They are the ones 
these contacts are the ones who told me about the, the tree of life with roots in heaven. I used that for a book cover. They, they explained it to me, and it's a Vedantin uh, tradition, the Vedantas. And um, when I started researching it, I found there were no pictures of it. I couldn't believe it. I could find it in the Vedantin text, but I couldn't find any artwork for it. So I had the artwork done. And it's really my favorite. And it's my the artist that I did this for me. He says that's his favorite. Okay. And now I have found that there is evidence when glyphs that the Hindu culture it probably well it's at least twelve thousand years old based on sites that have been found. They started forming and organizing about 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about Ida before we go back to the ancients. Because um, I want to complete that information. So okay. who was Ida? And what, what was her, what did she do? She lived to be pretty old, right? In her 90s or something? She was in her 90s when she died in 2010. And um, we were very resonant. She was born, I believe, in Iowa and grew up in the Corn Belt. And then she was a legal secretary for a while. That was before she was contacted in 1940 and uh, then she uh, started out dousing and one step at a time she became telepathic and one thing that's important to know about this because I I hear all these stories about these horrific abductions really and it's like could that be real how are there people who really do that? And the answer is yes. They are different groups of ETs active on this planet. Some of them do abductions, and I will say that the thing about abductions is that it's very unconscious. However, others don't. My contacts and the time travelers and the Arcturians and Syrians I work with view abduction as a last-ditch effort to communicate. Like, it's an emergency and they've got to do something fast. But you've got Whitney Strieber, and he's just like, he, it's like a nightmare of unconsciousness. And I contend, I submit, that those people with Strieber uh do not have his best interest. They're they're on an agenda, and they they work through unconsciousness. And my contact, their view is yeah. So you're having conscious contact, and he's having these 
Well, I think he's come to peace with them, but when he was initially contacted, he was definitely, like, having a rough time with it. Billy, I mean, my So God, you're saying he, he had different... Yeah. And, and the difference so is in the TT group and agenda. Contacting him. So who do you think was contacting him? What well, group? they're oh, great. Let's talk about the cosmos. Huh? Yeah. Right. They're gray on the cover of, of, of uh, communion. Yes. Uh huh. That's who contacted. Right. Then who's contacting you? Well, for the most part, these are several different groups of humans. And, and um, variations of the gray genome. For example, Maeve, whom I deeply adore, is a six-foot-tall gray. And I've been told, and I've heard it discussed, that the six-foot, the tall grays, the six-foot-tall gray, um, uh-huh. are very spiritual people. And that is my experience, and I do truly adore Wige, uh, Wige and Maze. But uh, they're the very tall. Oh, he's human, and uh, so which ones are the six foot tall grays? You've been you've been interacting with them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and there are species okay. that evolved from. The human genome. They are human, but they're gray. They're gray human. Uh-huh. And they're very spiritual. Because I've interacted with the very tall grays, and I think they were even taller than that. And they, they look different than the short ones. And uh, they seem yeah. to be the ones directing. Whenever there was an action, they were the ones in charge. And earlier you said that uh, you interacted with the, a gray that you thought was an android. A droid. And you knew it was. You knew it was robotic. How did you know that? Only from education. For I didn't know that in 1963. I could see they were short and they were not like us at all. And then since then, I've uh, read reports of people who say they're really androids, and they are the workers for Nord, the Nordic, for Nordic Greys. They're sometimes seen working for Nordic Greys and mm-hmm. for the tall Greys, like um, May. So you're talking about Whitley's and and his seem to be the short ones, but do you think Whitley's were um, sentient or, you know, alive, flesh and blood creatures, or were they droids? I think that probably he's probably had a combination of uh, of contacts with a combination of identities because he described one of them, can't remember her name, her name was, um, anyway, she was about five foot tall. She wasn't three feet tall. Okay? And um, 
Oh, she, he talked about it. You'd have to go to his website, read his book to find out more about it. But they have a different emotional set uh, than we do. We human types are, let's face it, hormonal. <laughs> and I don't think the uh, five foot tall grays are. Okay. Sash, what do you think about the smaller versus taller grays? What's your research on? Uh, uh, um, everything that, uh, that that you've been saying um, it, it seems accurate to me. There's different groups with different uh, agendas, and it, but it's, it's even more complex than that. Um, within the same ethnic group, just like within the same ethnic, you know, just like Americans, there's all different kinds. Even within the same group, even though there's pretty much a group mind and people uh, in these various uh, types are uh, tuned into each other, there's still individual variations. And as far as androids go, any, any uh, recurrent uh, patterning becomes conscious after a while and androids uh, attain consciousness. That's what I think. As long as there's a, a soul is present. If there's a soul present, it can attain to a high level of consciousness. But I'm not sure yeah. that all the androids are, you know, embody yeah. a soul. Okay. Let, let me just uh, put it in a, a broader uh, context of, of my thought, which is that everything, all that is and all that isn't, for that matter, is all there in inchoate, not yet formed form in uh, the uh, metacosmic void, and it's divine player, Leela, that brings it all about, so there is no other. It's all in uh, the same uh, field, so to speak. That's how I look at things. Well, I agree with you on that. That is the way it is. Everything that is is part of a divine field that is expressed in a variety of ways. Yeah, and it's that delightful expression of diversity which gives us the action, which creates uh, polarity or dichotomy, which of course are spurious or merely for the game. But the game is all part of, of, of uh, the creator of all, as it were. Right. Right. Well, there's nothing that's not related to all of creation. Everything that is, is part of the uh, creation. However, there, there are different levels, multiple levels of sentience, awareness, consciousness. And, um, you know, Shiva, the Hindu god Shiva, is basically means that which is not. In other words, he's imminent. He could be expressed consciously or physically, but he has not. But he is uh, represents that which has not yet come into physical existence or manifest. Mm -hmm. existence. Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. And there's your dark, uh, yeah, she, your dark matter. She, 
Shiva uh, corresponds, of course, to the to Enki, uh, the the founder of, of Ireland and Sumeria and in places like that, uh, and uh, he's regarded uh, by the, uh, the the inhabitants of Inner Earth as a Kalki. That whenever Shiva appears, that means the age is about to uh, change every twenty five thousand. In some 26,000 years, and that's just what's happened. We've moved from the uh, uh, age of um, Kali, uh, the destructive age, where all the uh, dichotomies have been maxed out, to the uh, now Shiva appears, the Kalki appears, it's the age of Aquarius, and it's time for us to really feel the love in our hearts. I think the vision you had in the very beginning of Jesus was the real uh, vision of the uh, compassion that's in all of our hearts and when i meet an extraterrestrial should i ever meet one and not and know that's what i'm meeting uh, i realize that i the common ground is the love that goes all through the universe and is between uh, us no matter how different we are that's what i think okay i can't say that i disagree i might express it perhaps a little differently but Fundamentally, I do agree with you. The all that is. And uh, Shiva is simply that part that has not yet physically manifested, like mm-hmm. dark matter. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, that's the way I see them. And uh, we've gotten hooked into some really destructive... And there are... Entities on this planet, they've been here as long as we have. They remain hidden from us for good reasons from their point of view. And we would call them bad, but within the framework of what they believe in their perspective on creation, it is as valid as ours is. Right. So they just have this different perspective, but we're labeling it as good and bad. And that's why people say, well, why why are they doing this? They don't understand the extraterrestrial um, philosophy or dynamics, you know, and they, they criticize it. Why, why do they treat us this way or not treat us this way? But they have different dynamics and a di- different understanding of existence. So they, we just thought it's meeting <laughs> realities. Right, and it's all about the economics of survival. And um, and the reptilians are a good example of that. The reptilians are so terribly uh, feared and hated. And let's see that, but in actual fact, from their point of view, they are competing with us for the resources for survival, and they were here first. We spun off from reptilians, and we we are the salty. You know, uh, they are they love anyway. They the reptilians, as far as I can tell, are very uh, smitten and devoted to physical strength and that sort of thing. And we're not. Mm-hmm. So they see us as a probably as softy interlopers. You know, we um, 
are impinging on their once perfect haven. Right. So they're, and we're running up against the top of the hour, but we're, we'll pick up more on reptilians if we run out of time on this topic. But, um, so have you interacted with reptilians? You know, I really haven't. I don't have a so I don't have a lot of interaction with reptilians, but I can feel them and I can sense them, and I know when they're present, and they've never bothered me. I can understand that there would be someone who um, was frightened of them, uh, who lived who who felt threatened and was therefore threatening. I mean, you got to realize, if you're a threatening force to someone, they're going to push back. And I right. think that's a lot of what has happened with the reptilians. But we're heading into uh, a time when there will be reconciliation. So we'll have to talk about Between that when we come back. So how, okay. yeah, let's uh, touch on that. We have three minutes, but what, what makes you think there's going to be a reconciliation? How's that going to because come about? Because we, we have pushed this planet as far as we can. And we are heading into an ice age. And it, it's a mini ice age. But, you know, we get cold spells out of the last 30 years, 20 years. The 50s and 60s were very cold period. Uh, the modern minimum was uh, about 120, maybe 125 years. So it goes up and it goes down. But we're heading into a different kind of ice age, different kind of cold. And it is going to threaten. We're going to have to really work to survive as a species. And it will probably challenge them, too. And those challenges to our physical survival will force us uh, to re-examine our values, re-examine our challenges, and maybe for once hold hands. Sounds great. You know, at the Battle of the Bull, at the Battle of the Bull, I'm sorry. Uh, sometimes there's a delay. So um, I just wanted to add real quick, we will go to the Battle of the Bulge. Haleakala had snow yesterday <laughs> over here in Maui. It was visible from all over the island. People were stopping and taking pictures. So it got so cold here in Hawaii that we got snow on the top of our mountain. So go ahead. What was the Battle of the Bulge? We have like about a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> At the Battle of the Bulge, it was this ferocious turning point in World War II that the Germans picked. I mean, they wanted that battle. But it was during this time, it was like the coldest winter in years. They were freezing their butts off. They were um, competing for uh, supplies. But at a certain point, Day. So hold that, hold that thought. We'll be back in five minutes. We have to take a commercial break. 
We're talking about the Battle of the Falls. We'll be back in five. is evolving rapidly and advancing into a fifth dimensional consciousness. They are seeking peace with all cosmic cultures, which may mean that the Earth will be asked to join the prestigious Galactic Federation of Light Alliances. Please join Debbie West and Michael Hathaway on Lost Knowledge. Saturdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Studio A for the latest breaking news on the Star Visitor's peaceful contact and the ongoing project of cleansing the Earth. Who are you? I am the architect. I created the Matrix. I've been waiting for you. Why am I here? You are the eventuality of an anomaly which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision, which has led you inexorably here. You haven't answered my question. The Matrix is older than you know. As you are undoubtedly gathering, the anomaly is systemic, creating fluctuations in even the most simplistic equation. Choice. Choice. Right here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. Be here Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Private Eye Matrix Revealed with Monique Lassan. Hello, my name is Mr. Rowe. I am the host of Reality Extraction. On Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, I utilize logic, intellect, and magic to methodically autonomize, vivisect, analyze, examine, study, scrutinize, and extract an essence of reality from a fog of illusion and confusion. You can find me on Studio B every Thursday at 1700 hours Pacific Time. That's 8 p.m. Eastern. No topic taboo, no subject too strange. I strive to take a neutral standpoint during the dissection of the topic at hand. That's Reality Extraction with Mr. Rowe on Revolution Radio. This is Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. UFOs to government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here.
Thanks for tuning in to Revolution Radio. Here at Revolution Radio, we are listener sponsored and commercial free, but there still are bills to pay. In order to raise some needed funds to cover the cost, our station is offering a silver special. In the continental United States for a $60 donation, or in Alaska, Hawaii, or Canada for a $70 donation, we will send you an uncirculated 2018 one ounce pure silver eagle. The $70 donation, uh, the extra 10 is to cover shipping, by the way, outside of the continental United States. When making the donation, you must put Silver Eagle promo in the notes on the donation. And thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at revolution.radio and freedomslips.com. Without you, there is no less. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Horses back, back, back. Schedule B on Revolution Radio every Saturday night, 6 to 8 p.m. You get outer space. You get honest answers, real researchers, truthful answers, and a place to engage with questions. Take part in the discussion. Revolution Radio on freedomslips.com host Collision Course every Saturday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central. 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, now is the time to get a few months ahead and really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long-term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health, not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four-month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with ExtendoVite. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Aloha and welcome back to Stargate to the Cosmos on Revolution Radio. And I'm your host, Deanna Carolesson, with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Aliquis, and producer Thomas Becker, and our special guest, Krasana Duran. And before we get back to where we were talking about the Battle of the Bulge, I want to remind everybody to please go over to that donation button on revolution.radio and make your donation this week. 
So we really, 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 really need donations to keep on going. So, um, Mad Painter, where are we in our fundraiser? Uh, we we have twelve twenty and we need twenty four fifty. But in the next two days, we got a bill of three hundred dollars coming up. So we need probably about two hundred dollars yet in the next couple of days, just to make sure we get that bill. Good, thank you. So, Sash, what would you like to say before we bring back? Okay, a few things. A few things. Chrisana was uh, telling us many times, alluding to Okies. Well, I gotta say, you know, I, I grew up in Torrance, California. And my next door neighbors were, they called themselves Okies, but they were the most interesting, best people I ever knew. They know how to take care of chickens and hogs. And we had a liberty garden and we traded everything in our backyard. We raised uh, eggs and, and grew stuff uh, for stuff from them. And it was, they're, they're wonderful people. So I, I love Okies. So let's start with <laughs> <laughs> start with that. The other thing is we were talking about, uh, Krasana was telling us about the uh, the how Hitler, although we know the Nazis actually won the war uh, and infiltrated us and everything, but at one point it looked like the the uh, Nazis were going to, to actually uh, win uh, and they attacked and uh, they went for Antwerp and they took and in a very, very cold spot. And this is where Eisenhower in Crusade in Europe says this battle of the bulge was everything for the European battle. And uh, Krasana was telling us about this point. It was real cold, and here comes the, the Germans in the freezing. Okay. Okay. So, then the Americans and the Germans were low on supplies, um, <clears throat> and they were, you know, like uh, the Americans would drop supplies airdrop them and the Germans would go out and grab them. It was that kind of a of a battle. And um, but on Christmas Eve who knows who started it they dropped their war for a few hours and sang Christmas carols together. So <clears throat> the fact of the matter is um, people do terrible things when they when they feel threatened. When their need for survival is high, they fear for their survival. And 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 I have to say one thing, and that is, I do believe that Hitler did not do all that himself. So I didn't, I don't want to engage in a, a discussion. Of Hitler, but I, I think he was under extreme pressure, and he would may have wanted to do things a little differently, but he was more or less forced into taking the path that he took. And um, so anyway, I was just pointing out that these heinous acts against humanity, they were able to put them aside, the Germans and the Americans, and sing Christmas carols together for a few hours before they went back to war. And I find that amazing. And you'll find that where we have total conflict, we have forces that are exacerbating the conflict. It, um, yeah, that's all I can say about it. Well, I, I would I just have, like to say that when we look at what they were singing, they were singing Christmas 
carols. They were singing songs about uh, the person who preached love for all humanity. That it was not random. It was what they were coming together for was to feel their humanness, their love for each other. That's absolutely true. It was their common humanity that they celebrated. They took time out of a war, a horribly miserable war. I mean, I've heard uh, survivors of that battle say it is the coldest winter they have ever felt. And they took time out and began singing carol, Christmas carols together before going back to war with each other. So what we have at the base of all this, and we have a very similar thing right now. It, it, it's similar in some ways in that we are all humans. And even the reptilians were the root of the, of the mammals. They're not complete strangers to us. We have a reptilian brain, okay? The greys are a mutation of the human species. And what we have at the core of the UFO movement that is totally lost is human nature. And if we could just come together on those, on that one concern, our human nature and our survival as a species, which is what I was talking about when the Battle of the Bulge came up, we would be living very different lives. There would be no, no, um, there would be no cover-up because we are really working with and for each other. That it is self-serving interests that keep us in conflict, that have kept us in the dark about something like being contacted by an extraterrestrial civilization that offered us technology. My God. Uh, with the technology. So you're talking about the meetings with Eisenhower? Or is that what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. They offer you. Exactly. With the technology that they offered Eisenhower, we could have free energy now, but we don't. Eisenhower was under pressure. Uh, the fact that he loved his soldiers is beyond question. And if he, he just simply couldn't do it. He couldn't tell the truth because he had other fish to fry. He had his politics. And um, and that's where where we've got it. We've got to mend that. It's that simple. And that's my sermon. That's where your human nature has got to rise above everything else. And if you cannot do that, I'm afraid those groups and factions that cannot do that will not be here long into the future. But it is they themselves who are creating that destruction. Right. So what are, um, well, let's, um, let's continue this story, but we're going to eventually get to some solutions, what we can do about it. So we have, you picked up the gauntlet from Ida. We didn't go into Ida's stuff. 
and you do uh, predictions that you learned from a, a system by analyzing what the Mayan calendar and crop circles or something, and you're able to do predictions. And they're pretty well, accurate. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. I have learned how to do predictions that are accurate. And I, and I don't use it. I don't get a crystal ball and a, calendar and a candle and light it and scry and all that stuff. I just use the plain old geometry of the calendar. And the time travelers are the ones who told me about that geometry and have helped me many times uh, work around a problem. I do the so calendar tell me the about way the they time me travelers. You're, you're calling them time travelers and as right. opposed to extraterrestrials. Tell me the difference. Who are these people that they're, that they're time traveling rather than just being extraterrestrials? Well, why do a time traveler? They came out of Atlantis. Some of them are also extraterrestrials. You know, one of the things that comes clear in almost all UFO contacts is time travel. Time travel is more common than the what we do. In other words, our calendar and our concept of time keeps us stuck in it. And, um, and uh, many, many ETs talk about time travel. So White was born here in Russia, um, but his father was a time traveler. That's an advantage that they don't talk about often. Um, and time travel is probably more normal and more average than we have been allowed to believe. We have been taught a, a religious model of time based on the, on the birth of a redeemer. And by the time religion had written about the redeemer, Jesus, you couldn't even recognize him. They turned him into what they wanted him to be for their own purposes, okay? So, here's an example of the fifth Gnostics are a good example, provide a perfect example, the Gnostic Gospels of Seth um, are a great example of the things that are just natural for humans in our human nature. He went out of body, uh, watched the crucifixion, came back and said, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and um, you can time travel. It's probably easier to time travel. If you understand what time is, you understand the way it works. Uh, it is easier to um, time travel than it is to pretend like it doesn't exist. To pin yourself down to this one little place in time that you drift out of. Okay. What do you mean so by that? that? Is who the what, what, what do you mean that we drift out of? Explain that to us. Well, if you, if somebody starts talking about um, 
seeing something at a distance and it felt like they were there, you think they're nuts. In other words, they do it naturally and easily. Staying fixated in this one reality is not easy. But you train children out of it. Children are trained to not remember, to not do things that are very natural to humans. And religion has been the um, biggest tool for doing that. Mm -hmm. Let me go to another example, okay? Okay. Um, In around 19, in the early 1980s, after the Rendlesham Forest, you're familiar Uh with that? Yes. Oh, yes, Uh uh-huh. Um, Lynn Buchanan was the premier remote viewer working for the CIA. So the CIA gave him an assignment to to remotely view that whatever happened in the Rendlesham Forest and report on it. So while he was doing this, he looked at the year 2050. And he found that there were three main species of humans, first of all, the population was just tremendously reduced. And there were three main species, which were Nordic, Reptilian, and Greys. And he said the hybridization was done very anciently. This was not recent hybridization. And um, so he looked, he, he, he couldn't believe it. So he checked with people he felt would know, and they, they confirmed his perception. Yeah, that's what they got, too. So what, so, I can tell you that by that time, those people who survived into the future, they're not like us. They have, they have dominant characteristics of three different species that are, you know, taboo now. But in the future, they won't be, and they will be the survivors of this ice age that we're coming into. And we are so glued to our concept of time. And we teach children to observe time in a certain way. And if you don't observe it a certain way and believe about it in a certain way, uh, they're considered abnormal. In fact, they're probably the ones who are normal. And those are time travel. You learn to use your time travel because that's what humanity is bred to do. Now, what Buchanan also said, in the same, he did he discussed this on a radio show. What he also said was that um, I'm I'm trying to think of how to put this. Okay. Um,
Well, I, I don't have to uh, drag it out. That's what he said. Uh, <laughs> why would he told basically what he said? But it, and I say it revolves around time, the perception of time, the way we see time, and the false notion of time that we've been given. Well, I've been studying all these uh, time travelers. And I don't know if it's made up or real, but it's just interesting to note what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is kind of correlating with what you're saying. And they are saying that by 2050, uh, there's all kinds of um, decreases in human population. So you're saying that the decrease in human population is because of this ice age. They're contributing it to... Um, you know, there's going to be these uh, birth changes, you know, not just global warming, but global everything, <laughs> where the waters rise and most of California, most of the sea, the cities on seas everywhere, you know, on the coast everywhere are pretty much underwater. So I've always been wondering where, just because the ice is melt. Um, so it's the same amount of water. Why is it? Why does it get higher? I kind of, kind of can't get my head around that. <laughs> we yeah, have the same amount of water, but some of it's frozen. Yeah, it's logical because our water levels are at the highest ever in history, uh-huh. uh, and they reached the very high levels at the end of the ice age when all the ice melted. Right. So the idea that you're going to simultaneously have an actively engaged ice age and high water levels just doesn't make sense. Um, when the uh, right. migration, the migrations from Asia to the America occurred during right at the end of the ice age, and they just walked across the Bering Strait. Right now, you can you swim. It's all melted. And that's why the water is so high. So I don't, it didn't make sense to me that that there would, you're going to have highest ever water levels if you simultaneously have a mini ice age. Right. So what's making everything melt now? What'd you say? What's making everything melt? Nothing is melting. We've got record level vibes. Now, it has no drowned at the poles. Right. There was a couple. Do we have the same amount of ice, but it's just in different locations? Yeah. In fact, we have more. Is that permanent ice or is that just this? Go ahead. Well, my theory is that there's several things involved in this coming ice age. And one of them is the inclination of the axis of rotation towards the sun. First of all, the sun's output is extremely low period, 
right now. But then the the inclination, the angle of the of the planet's um, inclination towards the sun is changing. So as that changes, it's going to put the emphasis on different locations on the planet. So you'll get your eyes in different le- uh, levels. And I will tell you, here's one of my successful predictions. In 2014, I noticed really weird sequences of earthquakes. So I don't just, I want to know how big the earthquakes are, but I want to know where they are and how they relate to other earthquakes because earthquakes occur at fault lines. And fault lines are not linear. They're um, very irregular as a rule. But suddenly we were getting linear lines of earthquakes in the earthquake report. And that defies everything. How could that happen? And I finally realized that the only way that could happen is if the Earth was leaning or tilting in a way, in a different way, so that the the, um, fault lines are not really all lined up, but because the tilt is putting pressure on the crust, it looks like that. Does that make sense? Kind of, yes. Well, um, if you take a balloon and you squat, you put pressure on one part of the balloon, it pushes another part out. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of principle. If the Earth axis of rotation is changing and the planet is actually leaning at a more extreme angle it'll put pressure on certain areas so that the forcing the earthquake into lines alignment that they weren't Mm -hmm. in that's the only way I could explain it so I published an article and I said hey guys guess what We have, it looks like the axis of the Earth is tilting and it, so that it's putting pressure on different areas so we're getting these weird earthquake patterns. That was 2014. In 2016, NASA, NASA announced... Pardon me? Go ahead. I had tilted. Go ahead. In 2016, NASA announced that the axis of the Earth is shifting, and it used to be the the, uh, center of rotation, not the magnetic pole, but of rotation, was in the Arctic, had been in the Arctic, and it's moving southeast um, towards Great Britain and the Atlantic. So I announced that. And I had even announced that um, of the inclination towards the Atlantic because I could see it in the earthquake patterns. And and that's what we have going on. Well, when that happens, the Earth tilts towards the Earth at a different angle. 
the earth tilts towards the sun at a different angle. And um, the, the sun itself has gone into an incredibly low function. It's putting out incredibly low levels of heat that it used to just be robust. And um, <clears throat> so if you've got that happening, different areas of the planet are getting different exposure to the sun. And with the solar activity declining, you don't have the heat evenly in the same pattern on the Earth that it used to be. Does that make sense? Yes, Sash wants to say something. Okay. Go ahead, Sash. Okay. You, make, you make an awful lot of sense. Uh, my studies of the uh, ancient Sumerian stuff, uh, the uh, guy that was running the uh, weather station down at Point Arguelles uh, 13,000 years ago, uh, 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 he, he, he uh, told his bosses, hey, you know what? There's these great big glaciers in Antarctica, and they're, they're, and, uh, they're going to come sliding down into the South Sea and make great big waves come up the, Re the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. But that's not even the worst of it, because it's, when those glaciers move, it's the ice sheet that covers Start the land video, mass is going to fall into the sea, and there's going to be interacting wave patterns all over the planet. And, uh, and uh, what, Janet? What, Janet? Are you telling me something in the Turn middle of what I'm saying? Turn off your video, honey. Turn off your video. You're, you're taking up to its bandwidth. You're getting all wonky. Your sound is getting wonky. Just turn off your video. Continue. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Nergal reported from, Antarctica, from, from South Africa that there's going to be this huge uh, um, thing that happens. And we have two modern scientists who have done glacial studies, and they expect that when Thwaiti, which is the one they've been watching, and se but several other of these gigantic glaciers the size of Maryland are going to come tumbling into the sea, the sea levels will rise probably about 10 feet. And, of course, the question is how fast are those 10 feet, and when will this occur? Well, and so that's that's all uh, um, happening as far as why there's general warming. There's more than one factor involved, but one of them is that all the planets are getting hotter as Nemesis moves closer uh, to Solaris. That's the uh, binary, the, the uh, red dwarf. That's uh, the primary, the, the partner to uh, Solaris that uh, shows up in infrared. And so we're all getting uh, warmer. That's one factor. The other factor, of course, is 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 the pollution of the uh, ionosphere and the seas and, and the other things that we're doing. Uh, Andy Lloyd estimates that 15 percent of our problems are due to uh, what we're doing. But, but there's an awful lot of it that's just uh, part of the cycle. Uh, and, and I just, Krishan, uh, uh, I just love your analyses. You're just so right on. I'm just in awe. Oh, well, I appreciate that. But do let me say one thing about this heat. Um, Paula Violet, I don't know if you've ever read his books. Um, he's a system scientist. He has his PhD in, in uh, system sciences. And he found that in the ice core, 
there is a repeating uh, sequence of high cosmic rays every uh, on an average of every 12,000 years. And that this comes from the center of the galaxy. Now, he knows that it comes because it's in the ice core. He, he um, theorizes that it comes from the center of the galaxy. And the thing about cosmic rays is they're subatomic uh, particles. And after they end, and they do not come from the sun. They are, they are of galactic origin. And after they enter our system, our atmosphere, they go through a series of secondary and tertiary breakdowns. And they go, you know, they break down into gamma rays and ultraviolet rays and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and when you really look at the cycles of species evolutions, when there's dramatic changes in the species, it is during one of these periods that regularly occur, like sometimes they're not all equal strength. Some will be stronger, some will be weaker, and they don't always come all at once. They can, but they don't necessarily. So this is causing these um, cosmic rays are instruments of tremendous change in our solar system. Throughout the solar system, and um, and the changes, the heating in the solar system started at the end, as I recall, of the uh, 70s. That's when we first noticed it. So it was that's when it happened. And um, so you have to factor in your cosmic rays and the intense radiation that they bring. Now. There are three rays that affect DNA. One is cosmic rays, one is gamma rays, and the other is uh, ultraviolet rays. And a lot of the changes that we're experiencing have occurred since uh, we started getting flooded with cosmic rays. So I think that a lot of that heating and part of it is from the sun, but you see, La Violette says when they come into our our system, they will cause havoc with the sun. And our sun has been really weird. It was really weird in 2012. And it is, it is down to an extremely low level. Yeah, human emissions, human creations are a small percentage of um, of heating. But, I mean, we have scientists who are so far gone. I mean, I do think it's just a far gone theory that they totally missed the cooling. It was all heating. Remember that? Al Gore and all that. And it's our fault because we're just spewing toxins into the atmosphere. But in actual fact, what they accuse us of doing is really our trace elements, and they're a, a very minute portion of what goes into the atmosphere. And um, But they haven't accounted for uh, 
the cosmic rays that are coming in and have been. Now, since this is really a focus is on UFOs, um, there is a, a group. It's a confederation, the Galactic Confederation. I can tell you who I think they are, and I can tell you why I think they are that. But they are basically, a, a large number of them were humans who left this planet eons ago before Atlantis sank. And they went out into the solar system and the galaxies, and they joined other people. Their DNA changed. And... Um, and they were, they were the, we called them space brothers. And the ones who want to scare the bejubies out of you talk about how um, dangerous they are, right? And um, anyway, they have names like Manka and Botar. And in 1956 and 58, they were contacting George Hunt Williamson and Richard Miller. And they had contacted uh, Dan Fry before that, and they are uh, they will not engage in violence. And remember, they started out as humans, Earth humans, and in 1958 they were giving a message through Richard Miller on a radio show, and they were talking about our current situation. And they said, um, let's see, what was it? Uh, they said that our poles were already showing signs of change because of radiations from beyond the solar system that were coming in and doing it. And... Um, I have found their information to have a lot of credibility. So when we're talking about about the um, mini ice age, I, I can tell you I have published what uh, my contacts told me in 1998. 98, they said that the sun was entering a phase shift. Uh, during it would enter a phase shift during the solar maximum of 2012, and that and then he talked about an ice age, the commencement of an ice age, and the weird things that happened during that solar maximum. NASA just didn't want to break your heart, <laughs> you know. <laughs> NASA just didn't want to have to tell the truth and the whole truth about what they really knew. And they just fabricated. I mean, you can only, a whole new standard, solar maximum. And we're now seeing it happen. So based on the information they'd given me and their instructions for how to use the calendar, in 2016, I posted a prediction that we would see a mini ice age start in the four years between 2016 and 2020. And this is not a little cold snap like we had in the 50s. Yeah, we have heating and cooling cycles all the time. But a mini ice age is very, very different. 
And in the meantime, the sun is just like solar activity is vastly different than it was in earlier solar maxima. So I don't think we know, honestly. And, you know, you get all these guys and they're attached to a theory. They don't have a damn bit of, of data. They can, I've seen them look at cycles and interpret them. And it's like, how can anyone come up with that? Right? And, you know, how can they interpret that cycle, which is just number crunching, uh, to mean what they say it means? Like, it's all warming. No, it's not. It is cooling. And anyone who doesn't believe that today will in another year. And it's going to continue to get like that. And it just so happens that I, I, you know, in science you use prediction, right? And you've got a theory, but you've got to prove it. And so a prediction that says, if my theory is correct, this and this will happen, or it won't happen, is a time-honored scientific method. And I took all the information they gave me, and I published in 2016 that we were going to see the beginning of a mini ice age. And I, I do believe this is it. It's not necessarily, it may or may not be uh, as severe as the Mondo Minimum. But during the Mondo Minimum, you know, millions of people starved to death. I mean, we've got a problem uh, when it comes to this stuff. And we don't know. And instead of telling NASA, telling us, we don't know why the north and south fields of the sun didn't reverse in 2012. And, and, and I found, I discovered that uh, in a Russian study that was published around 2016. And as of 2016, they still had not reversed. In other words, this sun is not going back to the way it used to be. And that's what George told me in 1998. And uh, <clears throat> so instead of telling us that, the truth, that we don't know why it's happening, NASA published, probably it will someday, I hope, be a classic example of disinformation. What they said is, well, all, and this was in like... <coughs> Between 2012 and 2014, David Hathaway, who was the director of the Institute, NASA's Institute for, for these things, said, well, we don't know exactly what um, the sun is doing, but um, we know that... Um, we're in solar maximum based on the number of sunspots. Well, the criterion for solar maximum has always been reversal of the north and south field. So he didn't tell us, well, the fields didn't reverse, but we're going to pretend like we know what we're talking about and um, call it the maximum because of the number of sunspots, and that was in June, and I'm pretty sure it was 2014. One month later, 
in July. The sun went blank. There were no sunspots. Right? So that's the science that we're dealing with. And um, I don't trust it, <laughs> frankly. I want to see. I want to see the numbers and figure them out for myself. So, but you are right, uh, Sasha, about glaciers slipping. Yeah, it's and moving faster and faster. Right, and you are correct about the um, man-made um, pollutants being about fifteen percent. I'll agree with the fifteen percent. What about the other 85%? That's not man-made. So that's what I, I wondered about. Is there something being uh, generated like harp technology or something that's creating this increased... Um, I think that somebody's trying to terraform the planet for their own... You know, they're taking it over for their own... Uh, reasons because, you know, there's all these valuable... This is a valuable planet it's got all these minerals and somebody's here to, to harvest everything that's my theory but I, I can't prove anything but well of course they didn't check in with you and say oh by the way don't worry about it we're just uh, bio we're just uh, engineering the planet to make it more amenable for us and I do agree with that some observation, I think it's reptilians who are doing that. Because you yeah. see reptilian, reptilian I have DNA to, is... I have to, uh, there's somebody knocking at my door. I'm going to put myself on hold, um, uh, mute. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, am I still on, on the air? Yeah. Let me... Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting. Uh, instead of... Uh, being dichotomous to think that everything and everyone is a fractal within everything and everyone and uh, if you do that then so as above uh, so below so within and so it's interesting to look within ourselves for uh, how are we uh, uh, is there part of us that's heating up other other parts is there, an, as Carolyn Corey and others say, is there a singularity within each and every one of us in each and every subatomic particle? And that uh, if we go inward, if we make just being in the now and expanding our self-sense to include all the fractals within us, that we can uh, really come to peace with our own uh, ice age, how are you icing over, how are you killing parts of yourself, uh, uh, and, or on the cultural level, uh, uh, you know, all, all that is, is really, uh, uh, and I love the, uh, your analysis that puts us back, we don't know, we're just finding out, I love it. Well, it just takes a little humility, and the reason we're in this mess is that we don't know how to handle humility. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We're an authoritarian culture who recalls, who requires that our authorities um, are supreme. And a perfect example of that is Copernicus, who was, you know, imprisoned for life for daring to challenge the Vatican's astronomy. Oh, isn't that right? amazing? Yes. 
But would that would that's that's uh, just one aspect of the totality, because there are other aspects that are incredibly uh, humble, and uh, I would say that uh, Native American Native yes. Americans and the Maya were Native Americans. Absolutely, uh, that they have a, had a much better grasp. On humility, and I and just you know that's right. That's what they have to contribute. That's why it's so. It's time for us to shut up and listen sometimes to uh, what what the Native Americans have to tell us because they can restore balance uh, on the planet. But if you look within yourself. A centered person balances pride and humility. So, sure, you, you, uh, it's okay to acknowledge that you worked hard and achieved excellence within the time you had, but to also be humble to realize that you've stood on the uh, uh, shoulders of giants and taken from everything and everyone around you. Embrace both. Right. Don't dichotomize. And that there are other people who did the same thing. And they are not exactly like you, and their conclusions may not be exactly like yours. But in the long haul, you'll work them out and see that they were just different faces of exactly the same phenomena. Uh, but so, and when you look deeply at what any want or demand really has, for example, let's say an angry demand is, you know, give me your territory or I'll kill you or something like that. Underneath any <laughs> demand, any underneath that demand is a need what does a person who's de demanding that need well i'll tell you what, what's really on the bottom line is people want love attention affection if you can That's reach right. that you can have you can you can commune with anybody and anything may i point something out clark is see when it comes to that the biggest imbalance we have, I do believe, is that we have either not learned to recognize or forgotten what we once knew, that the mind, the soul, and the body are different entities. And the human body is an evolution that is not necessarily sentient, but is intelligent. And it carries the memory of everything that's ever happened on this planet. Because at one time or another, our ancestors were part of it. And they passed that memory on to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we don't, when we fail to recognize whether we're dealing from a spiritual point of view or a physical point of view, it's easy to get confused. Mm -hmm. So we have to be aware of these different perspectives that each one is valid. The physical and the mental and the spiritual are all valid in different arenas of life. And we do oh. not need to switch them together. Beautiful. <laughs> it's you like, like that? each one... 
in 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 uh, in, in our uh, Jungian philosophy, each subpersonality, the body has a voice. Yes, you'll listen to the voice of your body. What does it want, and why does it want it, and what does it need? And your intellect has a voice. Oh, intellect, you've got something to say. Okay, what 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 is your? And you listen to all of them. But you are as a center person you embrace the opposites within you and to the degree that you can embrace the opposites within you you can embrace the apparent opposites outside of you and not be so put off or overly admire them either way but understand that you're resonating with uh, those other beings and it's that resonance that recognition that the apparent other is really one with self that allows uh, uh, a coherent field that it allows us to be one with our universe. That's how I look at things. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And Native Americans knew that. And they Indeed. encoded it in their culture. Yes. So I've got to tell you, Maya, you know, it's like Toth has told us that he... Basically, gave the uh, full uh, ability uh, for space travel to the Maya, and the Maya have been, according to people we got from the ICC, have been rescuing people from the corporate bases and uh, for the days that they'll, they they can be re rehabilitated or moved elsewhere. You look at the uh, sarcophagus of Lord Palenque, is huge person uh, in in the cockpit of his uh, Invimana, and you see that the Maya are our greatest pals. And Thoth brought them over a long time ago, way before the Bering Strait was uh, frozen over, uh, to help uh, at first at uh, Tenochtitlan uh, in, in the Valley of Mexico. And, and then, uh, you know, he basically, they were his people throughout the Yucatan. Underneath Yucatan, the, the, the things like Polenki that we see, there's huge cities, millions of people there, and we're just getting it through the, the LIDAR uh, a view of what's underneath there, vast civilization. Right. That's correct. And the uh, Maya apparently were in Bhutan, which is over in, near Southeast Asia, if not in it. Mm hmm um, before they ended up on the uh, in in Mexico. Yes, yes, that's my data says that too. So anyway, what happened? The descendants of Kayin, uh, uh, when it was revealed that their father was was Enki, uh, uh, they they he, they couldn't be killed, so they uh, Toth removed their uh, facial hair and and had them and their descendants move east of Eden, and of course. Dan is um, Mesoamerica, and so ultimately they're, they want, they're in Bhutan, and they are some of the people that uh, Toth uh, and uh, Ninerta also took over. They, they had another settlement even earlier uh, at uh, near Lake Titicaca, uh, it's called Tiwanaco. So they, they, they were, in, they were uh, what we're calling Indians, <laughs> they're not, you know, they were uh, people uh, uh, from Bhutan, basically from east of Eden, that uh, the uh, Anunnaki brought over to uh, work with them. You see pictures of, uh, of uh, in Mesoamerica of uh, uh, people with beards, obvious Middle Easterners, uh, people that look like Nigerians, the Omec, and they're using technological tools, doing all kinds of uh, very advanced things. Right, and to give your theory a little steam, um, Philip, Philip, 
Pyramid Center in North America. I think we're going to have to say aloha. I love you so much, so more. I love you just Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. for tuning in to Revolution Radio. Here at Revolution Radio, we are listener-sponsored and commercial-free, but there still are bills to pay. In order to raise some needed funds to cover the cost, our station is offering a silver special. In the continental United States for a $60 donation, or in Alaska, Hawaii, or Canada for a $70 donation, we will send you an uncirculated 2018 one-ounce pure silver eagle. The $70 donation, uh, the extra 10 is to cover shipping, by the way, outside of the continental United States. When making the donation, you must put Silver Eagle promo in the notes on the donation. And thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at revolution.radio and freedomslips.com. Without you, there is no less. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. 